Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. For context, let's read from the beginning of the chapter and let's ask for the Lord's blessing. This is the word of the Lord. May all who have spiritual ears to hear His word hear, rejoice, and grow in His grace. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. But if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Amen. Father, again, we would ask for your grace and your help this morning as we read and proclaim and seek to understand your word. Father, thank you for your promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that your spirit dwells in us and that he is leading us into all truth. Father, glorify your great name through us. Help us to praise you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, we as you can see, have come to a pause in the text this morning, uh, a therefore statement, which points us back to what we've been learning before we look forward to what we are about to learn. Paul is calling the church at Rome and all of us who are in Christ to consider this. Therefore, brethren, we are not debtors, not we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Therefore, therefore what? Based on what we've been learning from the beginning of the chapter and even before to the beginning of the letter, we are debtors not to the flesh. Well, how is that? Well, if we look from the beginning of the chapter, just for recent memory and recollection. I hope that we're all seeing, by God's grace, that it is the Lord who is at work, who is acting in each of these steps, each of these evidences that we belong to Him, that we are in Christ, that we are in the Spirit, that we are no longer in the flesh. He's telling us this loud and clearly 
by showing us the evidences. And what are those evidences? Well, we've seen that it's the, the, the spirit of life, the governing power, that greater power of the spirit of God in Christ Jesus who has redeemed us. He set us free from the power of sin and death which previously held us in its grip. He has set us free by bringing us to life and by uniting us with Christ, joining us to the wonderful work of salvation that Jesus has accomplished on the cross which God the Father had purposed even before anything was created. And He did what we couldn't do for ourselves. He sent His own Son. Why? Because the law could not accomplish obedience through our weak flesh. We were the problem. Sin in us was the problem. We were unable to save ourselves. And so God, by His grace, sent His own Son, His precious Son, the Son of His love, to represent us, to stand in our place and die a death that He did not deserve, that we deserved, in order that His righteousness would be progressively filled up in us, that we would be sanctified, that we would become more and more like Jesus Christ in our daily lives. That's the reason why Christ condemned our sin in His own body on that tree of Calvary. So God is at work. He's at work sanctifying us. He is the one who is causing our minds to bubble up to think on and meditate on the things of the Spirit. He is the one who has brought us to life and given us peace with Himself. The hostility that we had in our minds previously, He has taken away. He has canceled our sin. He has taken away our animosity toward Him, our desire to live our own life, our own way apart from Him. And He's brought us into peace with Himself. We know that we're not in the flesh anymore, but that we're in the Spirit because His Spirit dwells in us. Yes, our body is dead because of sin, as good as dead. It's dying, it's corrupted because of sin, but take heart, saints. Our spirits are alive because of the righteousness of Jesus applied to us. We are Christians. We are in the Spirit. That is the new you, the true you, who is really alive. And as we learned last week, there is a great power that is now at work in all of us who are in Christ. That is the very power of resurrection, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead bodily that also raised him to the highest heaven and seated him at the right hand of power. That power is at work in you and me in all of our salvation. It's at work in us. It has been at work in us to regenerate us, to bring us to life. It is at work in us now to cause us to walk in newness of life. And it shall be displayed in us when he raises our bodies from the dead at that last day. This morning, I want to show you how that resurrection power is at work. We want to consider two things this morning. One, looking back. Consider your obligation. There is an obligation that is upon all Christians, and we are to know it. So firstly, we're going to consider our obligation as we look back. 
Secondly, we're going to consider our end as we look forward. This is what the Lord calls His people to do, to examine themselves. Look back, look forward. So first, let's look back and consider this obligation. As we've seen, this is a therefore statement. And in light of what God has done for us, which we just recapped, how is it that we ought to live? What should be our response? What is our obligation This is not the first time that Paul has made a transition like this, showing us what the Lord has done for us and how we are to live in response to that. In fact, that is the the call of Scripture everywhere as you read throughout the Bible. I just want to point out a couple of places here. In Romans chapter 5, we had the same thing. Paul told us about the purse of blessings that is opened for all who are justified by faith in Christ alone a peace with God through Him, access by faith into this grace in which we stand firm and rejoice in hope of the glory of God, a a hope that is continuing to build in strength, a hope in the Lord, a confidence in Him as He takes us through trials and as He purges the sin from our lives. All of these things point to what God has done for us. And therefore, he begins chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? How should you live in response to what you've learned, saints? Certainly not. Not continue to live in sin. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? You see, coming to an understanding of what God has done for us in Christ must change the way that we live. And it will for all the true saints. That is um, a hallmark of what it means to be a Christian. Doctrine always precedes, practice always follows. Truth always informs how we live. The purpose of doctrine is never just to puff us up with knowledge. That's what knowledge does, apart from the work of the Spirit. Knowledge only puffs up. It adds to our pride. But love edifies, doesn't it? When we see what the Lord has done for us, our hearts melt in love toward Him. And that builds Him up. That builds up the church. That builds others up and humbles us. I love this quote from Dr. John Owen as he synthesized really clearly, I think, the distinction between a believer and an unbeliever as regards knowledge. Listen to this. I wanted to share this with you. The difference between believers and unbelievers as to knowledge is not so much in the matter of their knowing as in the manner of their knowing. Not the matter of their knowledge, but in the manner of knowing. Unbelievers, some of them, may know more and be able to say more of God, more of His perfections and His will than many believers. But they know nothing as they ought, nothing in a right manner, Nothing spiritually and savingly. Nothing with a holy heavenly light. The excellency of a believer is not that he has a large apprehension of things, not that he knows a lot of stuff, but that what he does apprehend, which perhaps may be very little, he sees it in the light of the Spirit of God, in a saving, soul-transforming light, and this is that which gives us communion with God and not prying thoughts or curious raised notions. That is the truth. Believers may not have a large knowledge of the things of God, but they have a genuine knowledge of Him. They love Him. It might be a childlike faith 
but they know their daddy and they cling to him and they cry out to him, Abba, Father, Daddy, as we're going to see. The unbeliever, he just wants to know because it builds him up, but it doesn't change his life. But for the believer, it does result in a change of life. And that change is communion with God. A deeper abiding communion with God. So I want you to note as we start uh, chapter 8, verse 12 today, that Paul is addressing the brethren. He says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors. This is a term of endearment that the Apostle Paul uses. This is a term he uses 11 times in the book of Romans. And every time he uses it, it's a term of affection because he's speaking of those who are united by the bond, the common bond of Jesus Christ. Those who are in Christ. And he says, look, brothers, let's consider what God has done for us in Christ and through the Spirit of God and if we do, we ought to recognize we are debtors. Now, what is a debtor? A debtor is one who is under obligation. It's somebody who's bound to do something, either morally or legally. He must respond to what has been given him or shown him or done for him. Paul does not say, you are debtors, but I want you to see that he says, we are debtors. Brothers, we are debtors. This applies to every true Christian and the fact is, every person in this world, whether he's a Christian or not, is a debtor, right? We learn that in chapter 6. The question is, who is your master? If you serve sin as the habitual pattern of your life, then you know for certain that your master is sin. But if you serve righteousness, you know that your master is God. So, we all are debtors. We all are debtors. But he says, for you, brothers, for us, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh. No. The flesh, as you may recall, refers to our unredeemed humanity. It's the place of us in us where sin dwells. It refers to the body of sin which is corrupted and has been corrupted from the fall of Adam. It's not just referring to the physical body, but it includes things like our minds, our emotions, our desires. All of that was corrupted at the fall and remains so, and that is the flesh. So he says we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to that, not to give ourselves to the flesh as a slave would give himself to his master in service. There's a really good parallel to this verse, Romans 8.13 and Galatians 6.8. Listen to this. Paul to the Galatian church, for he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. If you put your time and energy and effort and resources into serving the flesh, you will reap corruption. And that corruption is death. It's more corruption in your character as you live in this world, and it will result in a final death at the end. If you actively feed the flesh, if that's what you are intending by your practice, then your harvest will be a corruption of death. And we have many examples in scriptures of what it means to live according to the flesh. Consider Galatians 5, 
verse 19, where Paul says, Now the works of the flesh, meaning the acts or deeds, the enterprise, the business that the flesh is engaged in, is evident. It's this, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are the practices of the flesh, of the body of sin. Paul said it this way to the Ephesians in chapter 4. He said, it is that those who have, are past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. In chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 3, he says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, no unclean person, no covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Peter says something similar. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, those who don't know God. When we walked in lewdness, lust, strong desire for evil, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, worship of self in every form. And then at the end of the canon of Scripture in Revelation 21, verse 8, here's a description of those who will never inherit eternal life, but will inherit corruption eternally. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That is the portrait of life in the flesh throughout the Scripture. That's what it looks like. Do you want a really easy way to summarize all of that to keep it straight in your mind? Here's what helps me. Romans 6.21 What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. See, if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit has changed your heart from loving your sin to hating it, to finding it repulsive, to hating the practices of the flesh, and and to feeling shame when you endeavor to touch those things. It's the things of which you're now ashamed That's all summed up as the works of the flesh. See, our pattern in practice, loved ones, is no longer living for the flesh. Why? Well, we no longer find our life in the flesh, do we? We're no longer invigorated by it. We no longer love the flesh and seek to serve it. He's saying we don't owe our allegiance to the flesh anymore. We don't serve general sin anymore. We have a new general. His name is Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian this morning, you should ask yourself this question. What what reason do you possibly have, or would you possibly have, to live for the flesh? 
What reason is there to live for your unredeemed, corrupted human nature that still irritates you and is noxious to you, but it doesn't control you anymore? What do you possibly owe to that? What has the flesh ever done for you? Well, what we've learned is that it's only caused you to bear fruit to death in your body. It's only produced all manner of evil desire in you, like covetousness in Paul. It deceives you and kills you because you can't keep the law. It prevents us from obedience to God's law, which really results in our condemnation, a status of death, a judgment that's been pronounced on all who are in the flesh and outside Christ. It sets us at war with God, who is the source of all life and blessing. Why would we ever live for that? Maybe the better question to ask is this. What has the flesh done to our master, the Lord Jesus Christ? Rather than just what has it done to us, what has it done to him? I'll tell you, it nailed him to a cross. And it caused him to endure the eternity of hell for me as he bore God's wrath in my place. Why would any of us ever want to live for that, brothers and sisters? You see, what Paul's doing is he's reasoning with them as I'm reasoning with you. He's exhorting them. He's urging them, look back. Look at what God has done for you. You are a debtor no longer to the flesh, but to Christ who has saved you, who's rescued you, and to the Spirit of God who has joined you to him in glorious salvation. Live for him. Don't live for the flesh anymore. And now he's going to take us forward. Now he's going to broaden our view to consider two outcomes. He's going to hold before us life and death, as is always the case throughout the Scripture, and it's a healthy thing to do because it's what God does for his people. Consider your end looking forward. This is the second point for today. Verse 13 For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you spend your life satisfying and seeking to satisfy the strong cravings of the flesh, if you love this world and all that it has to offer and you live for that, the promise of God is you will die. In what sense? Well, there are some who would teach that when you die, you just cease to exist. The lights go out and you lose consciousness and that's it. That's a lie from hell. The truth is death in Scripture always speaks of separation. Remember, God is the source of all life and blessing. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So those who are separated from God are now separated from the source of life, joy, blessing. An eternal separation from God is a conscious torment and a destruction of the body and soul that will never end. It is what the Scripture calls outer darkness. It's what Scripture also calls the second death. And here's the axiom. Here's the rule, loved ones. If you live according to the flesh... You will die. And, and the construction of words that Paul uses in the Greek is emphatic here. He could have used one word just to say, if you live according to the flesh, this word, you'll die. 
but he doesn't. He uses two words in a construction together which is unique and which adds emphasis to say something like this. If you live according to the flesh, you will most certainly die. Let there not be any confusion. Is that not what Paul said earlier in Romans 6.23? For the wages of sin is death. What is earned by us because of our sin is death. That's what we are earned. That's what will be repaid to us if you live for the flesh. But, I love these buts, wonderful contrast. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live Here's the contrast to living according to, living after, and living for the flesh. And even though Paul doesn't explicitly say it, this is the other half of the debtor argument that he started in verse 12. We are not debtors to the flesh, but to the what? Spirit. To the Spirit. This is what it means to live according to the Spirit. And this might be a strange way of thinking if you're not used to this notion. Here's what it means to live in the Spirit. Kill the flesh. You know that you're alive if you are killing the flesh. Paul is here describing what we call sanctification. He's describing how we are separated in practice, in our lives, more and more from our sin. And the way he wants us to understand it now is from the perspective of killing that which is nearest us, which entices us, which leads us to more corruption. And there, like many other places in Scripture, and we've been going through some of these the last few weeks, there are many misunderstandings of this verse as regards our sanctification. The first I want to share with you is um, what we could call the perfectionism view or the entire sanctification view. It's a view where people believe that in a moment, in a crisis moment perhaps, that you can um, frog leap your sanctification from zero to perfection. They call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that it's a second experience that Christians have. In other words, you can be saved without the Holy Spirit, but then you get another blessing of the Holy Spirit that somehow takes you to this place where sin is literally eradicated from your body. They believe that sin is completely eradicated and you are perfected in this life. Um, the second view, so the, that first view misinterprets how quickly the process of sanctification can take place. They don't see it as progressive, they see it as instantaneous. The second view misinterprets who's involved in the process, who the participants are. This is the let go and let God view. They look at verse 13 and they say, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's God who does this work, and I cannot do anything. And they say the key is really just realizing our hopelessness, our powerlessness to accomplish this act of killing the flesh, and I just need to give it over to God. So, in other words, God alone is the one who acts, and I do nothing. That's a wrong view of who's involved in the process. And then the third view misunderstands the command to put to death the deeds of the body. And this is where the ascetics would come in, those who believe in a harsh treatment of the body as a way to accomplish a spiritual good in the body. 
or in the spirit. They say if you, if you are harsh with your body, if you starve it, if you hurt your body, if you push it in various ways that you normally don't, you can actually deal with sin in the body. And it's a view that's frankly espoused by people who don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have the Spirit of God, and so the only option that they're left with is to somehow do something with their bodies to try and effect a spiritual change, which of course is nonsense. It's kind of a willpower or mind-over-matter approach. Well, what is the right view that Paul is teaching here? Just a little bit of work looking at the text itself, the grammar, really, and the context of Scripture, brothers and sisters, always sets us straight. He says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, that's in the present active tense. In other words, if by the Spirit you are putting to death, he's not talking about a one-time act that happens to kill the deeds of the body, but a practice, a habit, a new pattern of life. It's right there in the grammar. It's not something that happens in a single moment. That's not the perf- this is not a perfectionistic idea that we're talking about. It's actually describing a process of progressive sanctification, little by little. And this isn't new. Paul's already said this in Romans 8 verse 4, didn't he? He said that God in Christ condemns sin in the flesh. Why? That the righteous requirement of the law, that God's own holiness, justice, and goodness might be fulfilled in us, literally filled up progressively in us. That's sanctification. That's progressive sanctification. Paul is saying the same thing here in Romans 8.13. If you, by the Spirit, are putting to death, are killing the deeds of the body, Actively, progressively, continuously, you will live. And I want you to notice here, he doesn't just say, if the Spirit does this, he says, if you, by the Spirit, do this. This is not a let go and let God strategy either. This is something that you and I are called to do. We're going to look at several verses with specific commands for us that Scripture enjoins on us to do with regard to dealing with sins in our lives. This is a process that involves both our effort and the sovereignty of God, the power of God working in us. And this putting to death by the Spirit is by His agency. Let's not forget that. Remember from last time that Paul's argument is If you are in the Spirit, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Every Christian has the Spirit dwelling inside him. And we learned that every Christian has great power through the Spirit available to him from the time of regeneration. We have a power that is the resurrection power of Christ. He has given life to our mortal bodies. He is giving life to our mortal bodies. And he will in every sense. He will throughout the rest of your life and he will at the last day. All resurrection power is given for your entire salvation. Some like to explain this dynamic of the, 50, of the partnership as a, a 50-50 partnership. Us working, the Holy Spirit working. I think that's a, that's a, a bad way of thinking about it. Because it's the idea that we could act somehow independently of God. That's never true. That's never the model in Scripture. 
What we know from Scripture is that man by nature is a sinner. He's dead in his trespasses and sins. He has no ability to do any spiritual good, and so all of salvation of necessity is a gift. It's a kindness of the Lord. It's His sovereign grace that comes to us and that works itself out in us. There is an aspect of cooperation here, yes, but we must be careful to give glory to God. Does God need our participation in anything? He does not. It is His pure grace that He would choose to involve us, that He would choose to indwell us. We, we are just the earthen vessels. We're the broken clay pots. He is the mighty power that the excellency of that power may be of God and not of us. I think Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 puts it perfectly. Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. That's the model. You are to work, yes, but recognize that the power that energizes you to do what you're doing is the power of the Spirit of God in you and the same power that gives you the desire through your new heart, to want to do what the Lord wants. And then as we think about the ascetic idea, Scripture basically says that there is no value of asceticism against the flesh. It has no power. Colossians chapter 2 is a really good text on this. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 Paul says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things that perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. That's what the basic principles of the world are, the doctrines of men, the things of this earth. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body. There's the ascetic idea. But are of, look at this, no value against the indulgence of the flesh. None. The flesh has a strong appetite. It craves, it lusts for evil. Dealing with the body in the strength of the flesh will avail you nothing. Remember the Lord Jesus. The flesh profits nothing. It's the Spirit who gives life. Octavius Winslow was a 19th century evangelist, preacher. He was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon and J.C. Ryle. Um, he wrote this, which I thought was really on point with regard to asceticism. He said, true mortification has its foundation in the life of God in the soul. A spiritual, yes, a most spiritual work, it can only spring from a most spiritual principle. It is not a plant indigenous to our fallen nature. This plant of killing the deeds of the body is not found anywhere in your human nature. Your human nature is promoting the deeds of the body, not killing them. So this is a foreign power that comes in from the Spirit of God. So here's what we need to know as we think about killing our sin, at putting to death habitually the practices of the body, the evil deeds of the body. First, we have to understand this, that the deeds of the body are still very much alive in the believer. This is a most interesting dynamic. We need to be clear about this in our minds. Romans chapter 6, verse 6 brings a lot of clarity to this. 
Paul says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that is with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with, the word he uses there is deprived of its power, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So the body of sin is crucified with Christ, but it's not entirely dead. It's just deprived of its power, and thank God it is. In other words, it doesn't have dominion and control over us anymore. When we died with Christ at the cross, what God effected was a lessening of the power of the body of sin for each one who comes to faith in Christ. And that grows progressively as we grow in our sanctification. Uh, Mr. Spurgeon, again, was really helpful to me, and I wish I had seen this quote back when we, when we went through Romans 6.6, 6, but I'm so thankful that um, the Lord showed it to me now. I wanted you to, to share this with you as well. He says this, The coming of the Holy Spirit into the soul gives a mortal stab to the power of sin. The old man is not absolutely dead, but it is crucified with Christ. It is under sentence, and before the eye of the law, it is dead. As a man nailed to a cross may linger long, but cannot live, so the power of evil dies hard, but it must die. Sin is an executed criminal. Those nails that fasten it to the cross will hold it until no breath remains in it. God the Holy Spirit gives the power of sin its death wound. The old nature struggles in its dying agonies, but it is doomed and it must die. Isn't that helpful? Your sin is like a criminal that has been nailed to the cross. It is not dead yet, but it is as good as dead. It is dying. It's struggling. It still screams and makes noise and calls for your allegiance, but it ultimately has no power over you anymore. And the key is to recognize that. So, sin is still very much alive in the body. Yes, it is weakened, but we need to be on the alert. And this is why we need to kill what remains, because it still exerts influence. It's still powerful, even though it is greatly weakened. Secondly, we're commanded to kill the deeds of the body. This is a clear command. This is not an option, this is not a suggestion. This is a command to be killing the deeds of the body. And if you're not actively doing that, then guess what's happening? The body is actively killing you. Your sin is actively killing you. That's an idea that John Owen really synthesized clearly. If you're not actively killing sin, then sin is actively killing you. It's one or the other. It's either you or sin. You need to approach the life of God the Christian, of walking in newness of life as a battle in that sense. You need to be on guard daily and engaged in this battle. That's what he's calling to mind here. I want you to listen to the Lord Jesus in Matthew 5 because he talks about the severity with which we are to deal with our sin. This is Matthew 5, 27. Jesus said, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish 
than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Is Jesus calling for us to mutilate our bodies physically? No, he is talking about the ruthlessness, the severity with which we are to deal with our sin. He's saying be extreme in the way that you deal with your sin. Pluck it out. Cut it off. And what kind of sin is Jesus dealing with here? This is an issue of lust in the heart, right? This adultery, he says, begins in the heart. It's not the actual action that God considers the adultery. It began in the heart long before that. So that's where asceticism breaks down. Dealing with harshness of the body cannot affect a lust that takes place in the heart. You can't do anything in the flesh that touches the heart. A spiritual axe must be laid to the root of sin in your old heart. That's the power of God and you through his word. Listen to Colossians chapter 3. This is one of the texts that speaks most clearly outside of Romans 8.13 about this idea of killing the flesh or killing sin. Colossians 3 verse 5 Paul says therefore put to death that is slay your members which are on the earth the various components of your body fornication uncleanness passion evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry Four of those five vices relate to sexual impurity. They're all attitudes that begin in the heart. He says, put those to death. Greed or covetousness is an insatiable desire to have more, especially for what is forbidden. And he says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now, you yourselves are to put off all these. Anger. Wrath, malice, blasphemy, which is better translated slander, filthy language out of your mouth. Put those things off. It's the word of, um, that refers to clothing. Take off that filthy garment and lay it aside is the idea. And then he, he gives five vices here that deal with anger and with evil ways of speaking. So again, these are attitudes that begin in the heart and that work themselves out as actions. And Paul's command to the church, to all of us, is kill these things. Take them off. Lay them aside. They're not fitting for saints. You say, how can I do that practically? Well, back up just a little bit before in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. So now let's remember this principle that we learned, are learning in Romans 8, 12, and 13. There's a therefore. When there's a therefore, we have to look back And then we look forward. So let's look back. What did Paul start with in Colossians 3 verse 1? If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. If you've been saved, born again, what is he saying? He's pointing to your salvation. He's reminding us of our salvation. If that's true, then seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. 
For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's the doctrine, there's the truth of what God has done for you. Then he gets to verse 5, and he says, Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. And then as you keep going, verse 9, he says, Don't lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Now he's, again, pointing us back to that union that we have with Christ on the cross. You have put off the old man with his deeds. This is what's true of you. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Again, pointing to our salvation. Now look at verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, now that you remember this and are meditating upon it and are mindful of it, often put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So that is the pattern. First consider what God has done for you in your salvation, then act. Kill the deeds of the body, put on the fruit of the Spirit, put off the deeds of the flesh. All those actions can never be taken in isolation. They're always in response to what God has done for us. That is the heart of sanctification, loved ones. That's what this is about. Listen to how Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. He reminds the saints who were dispersed abroad. He says, but you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. See what's true of you? That's your great salvation in Christ. Look what God has done for you. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, the nations of the world, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. It's the same pattern. Consider, meditate on, think on what the Lord has done for you. Now, act. In this case, abstain from. Abstain from fleshly lusts. They war against your soul. Same thing in Galatians chapter 5. Paul starts Galatians 5. He says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. There's another call to remember. Remember your salvation. You're free in Christ. It's His grace. It's His righteousness It's faith in Him that appropriates His righteousness. Don't get entangled again with the yoke of bondage, which is what? Seeking your own righteousness by the law, which is a deed of the flesh. Very, very practical instruction. Look at Paul in um, Galatians 5, verse 16. He says, I say then, and this again is in the context of where we started At the beginning of the chapter, knowing our liberty in Christ, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. Or literally, the flesh is set against the Spirit, and the Spirit is set against the flesh. 
And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, we are engaged, you are engaged in a daily battle between your own flesh and the Spirit of God who dwells in you. The two are set against each other. And the remedy to not fulfilling the lust of the flesh, to killing it, is walking in the Spirit. That's the remedy. Crowd out the lust of the flesh by giving yourself to the Lord. Walking in the Spirit. And what does that mean in Romans 8 language? Well, we learn that walking in the Spirit means you set your mind on the things of the Spirit. You give yourself in meditation to what God has done in His Word, to who He is, to His promises. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Paul said it this way to the Romans in chapter 13, verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Do you understand that he's saying If you want to kill sin, you need to starve it. That's how you kill it. You don't feed it anymore. You feed, you sow to the Spirit, not to the flesh. If you are filling your cup daily throughout the day with the Lord Jesus Christ, there will not be room in your cup to drink iniquity, sin. It crowds it out. So in other words, we can't be passive in this process. You cannot be passive. You are either actively killing sin or it is actively killing you. And if it's actively killing you and that's the pattern of life, death is ahead, not life. That's the warning. So this is something that every Christian is commanded to do. And thank God the power is there. We have the power of God. He will give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is an evidence that you are alive if you can do this. This is really something. I mean, if you, if you look at these commands, put off, put on, be killing, walk in the Spirit, sow to the Spirit, it, it, to the unregenerate person, that's like saying, come to life, you who are dead. You, you can't do this. These are impossible things for the non-Christian to do. But here's the truth we need to remember, brothers and sisters, for the Christian God always supplies what he requires of his children. He asks the impossible of us perfect so he can supply it. That way he gets all the glory. That way it's indisputable who the glory goes to because it's God who is at work in you. Now, I want to illustrate these ideas that we've been thinking about and and learning from the Old Testament. So, Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. This was our corporate reading this morning. I found this fascinating, the parallels that are really throughout many of these Old Testament accounts and what we're learning in Romans, and it's good to see them. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Um, This is Moses speaking. Moses has brought the first generation through the wilderness for 40 years. That first generation has died The second generation now are with him, and he is um, approaching the promised land. Of course, we know that the Lord is not going to allow him to enter the promised land because of his act of disobedience, or he didn't hallow the Lord in the eyes of the people. Um, He's going to hand the baton off to Joshua to take the people into the land. 
But Moses is giving instruction for the people as they look forward to entering the land. And look what he says here at the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. It's very clear language. You are to utterly destroy the enemies of God. Um, You say, that seems like harsh language, a harsh idea. Well, it is if you're thinking in the flesh. But if you understand that all are sinners and have come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, all nations of the world deserve to be obliterated by God instantly. They don't deserve life at all. So there is a time in God's economy when his wrath is filled because the sins of the people reach a point that God says that's enough, and he brings his judgment upon them. And so he's using his people Israel as an instrument to execute his justice in the land. And he says, I want you to utterly destroy them. Look at verse 16 now, Deuteronomy 7, 16. Also you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you, Your eyes shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. And we get an insight here as to why God wanted Israel to be so ruthless against these enemies. It's because if they allowed them to live or they allowed their articles, their belongings to survive, that God knew that those things would be a snare to his people, that they would lead his people into idolatry and away from the Lord. Hence, they were to utterly destroy them. Verse 17, if you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials which your eyes saw, the signs and the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out so shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Do you see what the Lord is doing here? This is uh, maybe surprising at first because what is the response to fear in the heart? He's anticipating that the people are going to be afraid. There's many more of them than there are of you. And if you read through Joshua and Judges and 1 Samuel, the accounts you get of these people, the Canaanites that are filling the land, are like locusts. They're everywhere and they greatly outnumber the people of Israel. And so, of course, at first, as they think of it, they are afraid. But here's the Lord's remedy. Here's the Lord's battle strategy. You shall remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt Remember what the Lord did in the great salvation of Egypt against the greatest king who ever lived on the earth or who lived on the earth at that time to bring you out from among that power. And now look forward. Verse 19, So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. If God did that to them, he also will do that to the kings and the peoples who are lesser than him that fill the land I'm calling you to go fill. 
Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until those who are left who hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be terrified of them, for the Lord your God, the great and awesome God, is among you. Do we think of him in those terms? The great and awesome God? The one who is to be feared above all? And the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will be unable to destroy them at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you and will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. And he will deliver their kings into your hand, and you will destroy their name from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. And then he talks about the complete destruction, including of their images and idols and their false worship. You will completely destroy them. There's a strong parallel here, brothers and sisters, between what we're learning in Romans 8 and what was instructed to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Just as Israel was to drive out their physical enemies, so we are to drive out our spiritual enemies. Our enemies as Christians are not any people group in the world. Our enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the three enemies that are identified for us that we are engaged in battle against. And all the principles that we've been learning about in Romans 8 are here in Deuteronomy 7. Israel was engaged to utterly destroy their enemies, so are we to utterly kill the deeds of the body. Israel could not do it on their own. God was their great power who delivered their enemies into their hands. And so it is with us. We can only kill our sin by the Holy Spirit and the resurrection power that He brings us. They could not drive out their enemies all at once. There's no idea of entire sanctification here. They were driven out little by little because God knew that it would be overwhelming for Israel to deal with everyone being killed all at once. The key for victory is to remember this. The key for victory is that Israel was called to remember, was called to consider, was called to meditate on their great deliverance from Egypt and to believe that God was able to do that again with all the lesser nations that he would cause them to inhabit. They were to know the truth, believe the truth, believe the promises, and then act in faith. In other words, it's faith in the Lord, in his salvation, in his ability to accomplish salvation that enables us to live the Christian life. That's the key message. That's how we are killing our sin. That's the heart of sanctification, loved ones. Walk in the Spirit, set your mind on things above, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. After Israel came into the land, Joshua was their new leader. I want to show you something else here that is parallel to what we just learned in Deuteronomy 7. As a fulfillment of what we just read. Joshua, as a type of Christ, is the commander of the armies of Israel, and he leads them into battle. And you know the story. As they come into the land, they have a, a victory at Jericho. Then they have a setback at Ai. 
but the Lord eventually gives them victory at Ai. And so we come to Joshua chapter 10 and to the king of Jerusalem, Adonai Zedek, who had heard that Joshua had taken Ai and utterly destroyed it, and that he had also made an alliance with Gibeon, the Gibeonites, who were a strong, a mighty people, a great numbered people in the land of Canaan. And Adonai Zedek, the uh, king of Jerusalem, fears. He fears because of the alliance that Joshua has and the power that Joshua has. And so he creates a confederacy of five kings, five Amorite kings. And he says, let us go against them in Gibeon and fight them. And so Joshua goes to meet these five kings and their armies who vastly outnumber Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, verse 8 of Joshua 10, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. There's the promise. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them from before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makeda. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon that, notice this, the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Who fights for Israel? The Lord God Almighty. And then Joshua asks of the Lord that he would do something that had never been done before to cause the sun to stand still in the sky to give them time to defeat the rest of the people. And the Lord grants the petition. And then these five kings of the Amorites, whose armies had been chased and just defeated, they hide themselves in a cave at Makeda. And Joshua seals a stone on these five kings. And then in verse 22, he calls them out. Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so and brought out those five kings to him from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and they put their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees, and they were hanging on the trees until evening. So it was that at the time of the going down to the sun that Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees, cast them into the cave where they had been hidden, and laid large stones against the cave's mouth, which remain to this very day. The caves where those kings were hiding became their tomb. This here, loved ones, is another model. Israel was to kill their enemies, but God was the one who routed them and who fought for them, who cast those great hailstones down upon them and destroyed them. 
And then even these kings of the enemies, the, the greatest of the armies who represent the most power, even they who go into hiding, Joshua calls out into the open. And it's in the context of knowing their salvation. Israel had just seen this great deliverance that they put their feet on the necks of those kings. But it's Joshua who ultimately kills them, isn't he? Isn't it? Loved ones, which are some of the king sins that are perhaps hiding in your flesh this morning? The king of your sins. The ones who are strong and yet may not be so easy to detect at times. Pride, perhaps. Unforgiveness. Anger. Self-pity. Complaining. Jealousy. Envy. A love for the praise of men. The Lord Jesus is calling out those kings. And he's commanding you to put your feet on their necks. This is the new practice that we are to be engaged in in the Christian life. You are to engage, but know that it's the Lord who is at work in you to do this. Believe his promises. Look to him. Know what he's done for you and live in accordance with that. Be the Christian that you are. He says, if you do this, you will live. You'll live. In what sense? Well, you will live and be happy unto eternity. In this life and into the next. Your inner man will be renewed day by day and you will get a real sense for that as you are strengthened in the faith. Your joy and your peace will be fulfilled despite your circumstances. You will experience what Christ called life and life more abundantly. And the allure of sin will lessen over time. That's how you know that you are effectively killing your sin. Is that sin will have less and less grip on you over time. The things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. They won't attract you as much as they did before. Yes, you will still fall to them and you will repent and you will continue to walk. But they will not have the same allure that they once had don't you see that that's happening in your life now as you grow in the faith? The things that you once tolerated, the things that you once loved, you don't have a taste for so much anymore. anymore. That's the Lord who is changing your taste. Praise Him. Praise Him. Now, friends, as, as we close, think about this. If the key to driving out our enemies, the world, flesh, and the devil, and in particular the flesh in the case of Romans 8, if the key to driving out our enemies is to remember, consider, and meditate on the Lord's great salvation, where is it that we are to look for our deliverance? Israel was called to look back to Egypt. Remember Egypt. Where do we look? We look to the cross. We look to the cross, to Him who knew no sin, who was made sin for us. That's Jesus Christ, the Lord, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is where the greatest deliverance took place. 
Because that is where all our enemies were defeated, loved ones. Our sinful flesh, along with its passions and desires, were crucified with him, past tense. They've been nailed to the cross. They're like that criminal dying a slow death. And yet we are to continue to nail that criminal to the cross by our obedience to the Lord. Our death certificate of all our sins was nailed to that cross. It was paid in full. All principalities and powers were disarmed and made a public spectacle at the cross. Satan and all his minions, all evil authorities, were made a public shame by the Lord Jesus as he triumphed over them in his cross. And even the world, Paul says, has been crucified to me because of the cross. You see, every enemy has been dealt with at the cross. The world, the flesh, and the devil. They were all dealt a death blow. Yes, they're still alive. Yes, they are a nuisance. But they no longer reign and have power over us. Praise the Lord. And if the greatest deliverance already took place at the cross, again, thinking about that parallel with the greatest deliverance of Egypt, do you think that God will keep his promises to drive your enemies out who are lesser than what happened at the cross? Do you think that God can't drive out every enemy of yours as you look to him in faith? Saints, fear the Lord. Love him with all your heart. Serve him only and obey all his commands. Not because you're trying to earn something with him. I hope you see from what we've been saying. The opposite is the case. He's shown his salvation. Will you receive it? Have you received it? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Has his great salvation been revealed to you this morning? And if it has, praise him. Take up that cup of salvation and drink it freely. It's his gift to you, though it cost him everything. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Moses is called to the people as he was about to pass the baton to Joshua to take the people into the promised land was this. And I want to leave this with you to consider. Deuteronomy 30, 19 and 20. I call heaven and earth as witness today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him for he is your life and the length of your days and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. Choose life, loved ones. Let's pray. Father, now we just ask that you would apply your word to our hearts as only you can do. Speak to our hearts, Lord. Change us from within. Cause us to walk in your way and to delight in you. Help us to bring you praise and glory as we live in response to what we've been learning. We thank you. We praise you. We love you, Lord. We want to live for you and give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.